could take your Bibles and join me in John's Gospel. Where we were in John chapter 11, back at the 1st of December. John chapter 11. You can follow along as I read beginning in verse 38 through the end of the chapter. John eleven thirty eight. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stove was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by now this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to, with Mary and saw that what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things what Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God, who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so, might, so that they might seize him. Let's pray together. Father God, it is with humble spirits and anticipation of your work in our lives and our hearts this morning, that we come to this passage in the hopes that we might learn more of you, that we might clearly see your glory, that we might be given an understanding of your sacrifice, your purposes, your redemptive grace and love, and being moved by what we read and touched by your spirit. As a church, we can be sanctified. We can be given that understanding that causes us to be more like Christ, to be more passionate for his work, his purposes, serving him, devoted to him, giving our lives entirely to him. 
And we recognize before you, we depend upon your spirit to do that work for us. I pray that you grant me the ability to speak clearly this morning and truthfully according to your word. But give us all those spiritual ears that we can hear you speaking to us through this passage and even through my preaching. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I think many of us have regarded John's gospel as almost a favorite, a favored gospel and maybe even a favored New Testament book. And I have in the past thought many times, what a wonderful writer John is. What a great storyteller. He has a way of telling the story of the gospel. But in my study more recently, even preparing for these sermons, I've realized how deeply theological John is. This is a text that brings out the doctrines and the theology, the Christology of the gospel so clearly and so wonderfully. And you may not think it's in the passage before us, but it truly is. And so I want us at the beginning here to kind of direct our minds theologically as we study this passage together. We last looked at this text back in the 1st of December and through the Christmas holidays and then through some delays, we've been kept from it until this morning. But looking back at where we've gone in John chapter 11, the heartbeat or the pulse of this passage is way back in that 25th and 26th verse where Jesus declared, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. He made that declaration, and then he proved that he is indeed the resurrection and the life when he raised Lazarus out of the grave. What is perhaps more stunning to us as believers is to watch the response that came from that miracle. That miracle that demonstrated Jesus Christ is exactly who he declared himself to be as the resurrection and the life. And I say that we're stunned by that only because now we are spirit-filled believers. And it doesn't make sense to us how the crowds and the city of Jerusalem responded to that miracle. But before Christ came and breathed new life into us, likely we would have been those folks in Jerusalem that we're grappling with the reality of who Jesus Christ is. This morning, we're going to look at these last 11 verses, from verse 47 to the end of the chapter, as the plotting of treachery against Christ. And you can see the groundwork is being laid for Calvary, what is yet to come in John's account. I've rearranged the notes just a little bit from where we left off back in December, because, well, that was a long time ago. So I'm just freshening it a bit with a little bit different heading here. But this last section of John chapter 11 really describes the heart of mankind. This treachery that was on their hearts as they looked on at a man that has just raised somebody from the dead. Somebody that had been in the grave for four days. So I've identified this final section as the plotting of treachery that took place as a result of the miracle that Jesus had just performed. That's the amazing part to us. This is what took place after Jerusalem had witnessed this miracle in Bethany. In verses 45 to 46, we read that many people believed in Jesus 
because of that miracle. And these appear to be genuine believers, unlike some others that John has identified in his previous chapters. Those that gave appearance of believing, but truly they fell away later, showing that they were not believers. Well, these here in verse 45 appear to be true believers because John contrasts them with those in verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and reported what Jesus had done. These people in verse 46 that are contrasted with the believers in verse 45 are not going to the Pharisees to convince the spiritual leaders to give Jesus another look. We've just witnessed a miracle. I think you need to pause here and consider, could this be the Messiah? These are not people of that sort. We would call these people, the the ones in verse 46, today we'd call them snitches. We'd call them tattletales. We would even say they are traitors to the cause of Christ. John puts these people in contrast to those that had believed, those that had believed because they witnessed Jesus as the resurrection and the life. These people had watched these folks come to faith. They witnessed many turning to Jesus. And they became all that more embittered toward the Lord. So they run to report to the Pharisees. Knowing the Pharisees had a growing objection to Jesus. The miracle itself then is entirely dismissed in its efficacy or its power at the hands of Jesus Christ, and the move is made to rather silence Jesus because of that miracle. So they go to the rulers in Jerusalem, who they know can get the job done. They go to the Pharisees. And this brings us to verse 47 and verse 48, which I have identified as the conspiracy of the council as they gather together. John writes that of this conspiracy that was formulated to bring an end to the rising popularity of Jesus Christ. After the Pharisees heard from these concerned complainers in verse 46, they decide we got to convene a council. We got to get together with the other rulers and leaders in Jerusalem and decide what are we going to do in dealing with this Jesus. So we're going to first look at this gathering. What is it made up of? What is this council looking like? This gathering was a special meeting of the Sanhedrin, which consisted of the high priests and certain members of the priestly family along with the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, we know, were the experts in the law or the Old Testament scriptures, and they were the primary teachers of God's law in the Jewish community, as well as the leaders of the synagogue. They were generally more of the middle class within society. So it's understandable that the people are going to come to the Pharisees before they go to anybody else. They're more the common kind of person. The Pharisees were highly religious and they prided themselves on their superior spiritual standing before God and before the Jewish community. Now, while the Pharisees would be viewed largely as the ones that we would say have a correct doctrinal perspective in many respects, where they faltered greatly was that they had externalized religion. They focused on outward conformity to the law where moral actions were more important than pure hearts. 
And we know that's where Jesus confronted the religiosity. This is where Jesus condemned the religion. So intense was this focus on the outward form of religion that they had created strict laws of their own that they attached to godly living under the law of God. So they added their own laws to God's law. Jesus exposed this hypocrisy, and he rejected their outward religion that ignored the heart. The Pharisees hated Jesus for this exposure, and they acted towards him in hateful ways because of it. The Pharisees, however, did not have the political authority act on their own. And in order to deal with Jesus, they were going to need the help of the Sanhedrin which was the ruling power that was allowed to exist in Israel under the Roman Empire. The Sadducees were the majority party that controlled the Sanhedrin. So their part in dealing with Jesus from a legal and a political point of view was essential. So the Pharisees called for a special council that included both the Pharisees and the high priests, which largely made up the Sadducean party. So Pharisee and Sadducee, they're now coming together. Oddly, the high priests, which formed the Sadducean party, held a dimmer view of the law of Moses, and they were more political than they were religious. I say that's odd to me anyway, because they were the priests that served in the temple. But the Sadducees only regarded the first five books of the Old Testament as authoritative. They didn't believe in spirits or angels, and they did not believe in the resurrection of the physical body, as did the Pharisees. And that would have been a very odd thing, because what is the subject of this council? They're dealing with a miracle resurrection of a physical body. And here are the Pharisees that don't believe in that. And here are the, I'm sorry, the Sadducees that don't believe in resurrection. And on the other side are the Pharisees who do believe but yet they reject Jesus who performed that miracle. So this is an odd meeting, to say the least. The Sadducees were of the wealthy, aristocratic part of society, and they were far more cooperative to Roman rule, and they were known to compromise with Rome to maintain their positions of power and control. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they objected to Roman rule, and they resisted their control over Israel as a nation. James Montgomery Boyce identifies the Pharisees as more a religious denomination, while the Sadducees were the politicians. So you see the kind of grouping together, the gathering of the Sanhedrin and what they're made up of. But what this formed was a very odd and almost opposing coalition of leaders within the Jewish community that met for one purpose, and this is their agenda, Jesus What do we do with this guy? And you'll notice the question that is brought up by these people in verse 47. What are we doing here? What are we doing here? They've been looking back on their their pursuit of Jesus. Many times we've read from John that the Pharisees had attempted to seize and arrest and to take control of Jesus so that they might kill him. And then Jesus comes up with an even greater miracle. He heals the lame man, and the people are attracted to Jesus, and the Pharisees fail in their attempt to apprehend him. Then Jesus heals the man that was born blind, and again, the people are drawn to him. 
And the Pharisees, again, a failed attempt. Now what does Jesus do? He raises a dead man from the grave. And they're saying, what do we do with this guy? Whatever efforts we've made here are failing. And in this discussion, they recognized, notice verse 47, Jesus was performing many miracles. They understood that. That was part of the discussion as the Sanhedrin gathered. But we notice that this is, it doesn't cause them to ask who Jesus is with, that he would perform such things. Rather, they're only concerned with how the people are being drawn to him in faith and how this might stir up trouble for them with the Roman Empire. What this clearly shows is that their minds were made up on how they felt about Jesus Christ. And faith in him was not the direction that they were willing to go. Their concern was that if they did not change the course of events, all men are going to start believing in Jesus. All men are going to follow after him. It's going to cause us trouble. What are we going to do with this guy? As I was studying this part of the passage, there was an old song that came to mind. Back when my wife and I were dating a long time ago, we listened to an album that my father had given me by Johnny Horton. And you know, he sang those American ballads. One of you folks gave me a CD, and I've, been, I've played it ever since, but there was one song that Johnny Horton sang about World War II. It was the sinking of the Bismarck. You remember that song, some of you? Some of us older ones now? The Bismarck, the scourge of the seas, we got to cut her down. That was, the, that was the lyric that kept coming up. We got to cut her down. This is the tone of the meeting. We got to cut him off. We got to cut Jesus down. We got to stop him because all men are being drawn to him. Hyperbole on their part, for sure, because all men weren't being drawn to him. But in their perspective, Jesus was becoming far too popular. And now he pulls this latest stunt, pulling somebody out of the grave. Verse 48 identifies this concern as a fear that they're going to lose their place and their nation. It might be taken away from them. Now, the place that they were concerned to lose appears to be a reference to Jerusalem and the temple itself, which stood as the Jews' national and religious identity. The idea or the concern of losing the nation speaks about their real estate in the world. A nation established by God, their pride, their patriotism was not surprisingly rooted in that position. I said a people continue to believe in him. The Romans are going to get involved. They're going to take away our place our temple, our religious identity, and our nation, our real estate that marks us as a people of God. Now, this is somewhat interesting since Rome had only allowed them to exist in part as a nation. They are under the tyranny of Rome, and Rome only allowed them certain conveniences or practices. What is most peculiar about this agenda is that they were there to discuss a man who had performed many signs by their own words. And among the miracles by Jesus there in the city of Jerusalem, the raising of a lame man, the, the healing of the man that was born blind, and now more recently, the raising of a man from the grave. And there were many other signs that Jesus did, according to John. And these council members, 
they admitted to these many miracles. This should have alerted these Jewish men to the possibility of Jesus being the promised Messiah of God. And from their point of view, as wrong as this point of view was, from their point of view, they were waiting for the Messiah to come and to deliver Israel from the oppression of Rome and to establish them again as a sovereign nation. Isn't that peculiar? Here they are meeting to get rid of this guy. And this man was doing these amazing signs and miracles that should have identified him as the Messiah. And again, in their errant thinking, they thought Messiah would come as a conquering general. They should have celebrated Jesus. They should have been asking the question, is this the Messiah? Is this one sent to us from God? And will he rescue us from the Roman Empire? Instead, they're only concerned to hold on to their positions of power and influence that Rome had allowed them to have. And this exposes the motive in their hearts, the motive that we need to consider as we look at these leaders of Israel who are collaborating together to do away with Jesus. The motive on the hearts of these council members was not patriotism. It wasn't concern for the religious condition of God's people or even really for the temple itself. When they spoke of Rome taking away their status as a nation and removing temple worship, they were more concerned with their own positions of influence and power that they held in the temple and within the nation. Rome had granted them to fill positions of leadership and recognition that they did not want to lose. And if Jesus caused too much of a stir, Rome was going to step in and take it all away from them. And guess what? They'd be just regular citizens without that influence, without those positions. So the driving force behind this council was that Jesus Christ was gaining traction among the people. And this religious community, these religious leaders hated him for it. They were willing to set aside their vast differences, join forces together to protect their own positions of prominence among the people. The Pharisees. The Sadducees, they hated each other and they regarded each other as spiritual and national enemies, but they hated Jesus even more and they were willing to join forces to see him undone. No amounts of miracles were going to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah, the son of God. Jesus had sufficiently challenged the righteousness He had objected to their unholy influence within the nation of Israel. Jesus had directed the heart of the people away from the corruption of the Jewish rulers. He had called Israel to repent of their sins and to come to him for salvation, come to him for forgiveness. Yet not even raising a man from the dead was going to assuage their bitterness against Jesus so as to cause them to to even question if he could be truly the Christ sent from God. John chapter 11 exposes then the dreadful condition of sinful depravity that is upon all mankind. What What we witness in these verses and in this council is what Jesus prophesied in Luke chapter 16 and verse 31. Recall the parable that Jesus taught in Luke 16. Lazarus and the rich man both died. The rich man went to Hades. He he appealed 
to the forefathers. Get me out of here. And when he couldn't get out of there, he said, let me go back. Tell my brothers what an awful place this is. But Abraham denied him that. And in the end, Jesus communicated this truth through this parable. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. I'm going to bring up on the screen Leon Morris, an expression that he gave in his commentary on John. And I think this gets to the pulse of human depravity that we are witnessing in this council gathering in the Sanhedrin. It has always been the case that those whose minds are made up to oppose what Christ stands for will not be convinced by any amount of evidence. In this spirit, these men recognize that the miracles have taken place, but find in this a reason for more wholehearted opposition, not for faith. That is the amazing reality of what we're reading here in John chapter 11. The reason for uh, this wholehearted opposition was that Jesus demonstrated to them in a very real way that he was indeed the resurrection and the life. Yet it didn't cause faith, did it? It caused an even greater enthusiasm to see Jesus put to death. And as believers, again, this may seem so bizarre to us that a man who can raise somebody from the dead would not be believed in. But the motive of sinful man's heart is clearly exposed here in the chambers of this Sanhedrin council meeting. Men will look out for his own selfish interests, his own corrupt interests, before men will accept the undeniable truth of Jesus Christ. As Jesus taught back in John chapter 3, Men love their darkness more than the light of God. And those who do evil hate the light. And they don't come to the light for fear that their darkness or their deeds will be exposed. This is exactly the motive in the hearts of the Sanhedrin. And it's exactly the motive in the hearts of those who hear the gospel and yet who reject it. We don't want our hearts exposed. And were it not for the grace of God who intruded into our very spirit and our very being to show us the truth of Christ, we would sit here today as unbelievers. This brings us to Caiaphas and his involvement in the Sanhedrin council, what I refer to as the contention of Caiaphas because he's so adversely opposed to everything Jesus Verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and the whole nation not perish. Caiaphas, as the priest during this time, would have functioned as the chairman of the board or the president of the Sanhedrin. And when he spoke, others listened. It's like the old Merrill Lynch commercials. When Merrill Lynch speaks, people listen. When Caiaphas spoke, everybody listened. And at the end of the day, you'll notice in that meeting, every, everything flowed in his direction. And we see that in verse 53. It all moved in the direction that Caiaphas wanted to direct that meeting. Now, John tells us that Caiaphas was the high priest that year, 
meaning that Caiaphas was the high priest during the year these events were unfolding for Jesus. He's not suggesting that Caiaphas was just on a one-year term as high priest because that's not how they determined the position of the high priest. Traditionally, the high priest held that office for a lifetime. But more realistically, during the Roman captivity, the high priest was placed and removed by the Roman Empire. In other words, if the high priest cooperated with Rome, the emperor would leave him in place. If he was a lot of trouble from the Ro- for the Roman people, he was removed. And the historical record indicates that Caiaphas held the office for a rather long 18 years, which tells us what about this man? He cooperated with Rome, even to the fault or the harm of Israel. It shows us something of the heart or the character of this man and how he executed his priestly duties there in Jerusalem, adding to this we see the very shallow character of Caiaphas in his treatment of Jesus, both here and at the trial of Christ. We see that in in Matthew 26. We see him again in Luke 3, in John 11 here, in John 18. He's even continuing to act this way in Acts chapter 4, after Christ is resurrected and ascended back to the Father. Another quote I'd like to bring up is from the scholar William Hendrickson who gave, or gives us an assessment of Caiaphas's character in his commentary on John. He writes, In the patchwork of his personality, the strands of brazen impudence, insane ambition, rancorous jealousy, and consummate cleverness were interwoven. That Caiaphas was a rude and sly manipulator and an opportunist, who did not know the meaning of fairness or justice, and who was bent on having his own way by hook or by crook, is clear from the passages in which he is mentioned. In other words, the word of God presents this man as a very unscrupulous priest. This hardened and self-focused personality comes out clearly the moment that he opens his mouth in the council meeting. He almost mocks the rest of the council members. You idiots, you fools, you know nothing. Talk about arrogance. He's calling them imbeciles and idiots. And he's not only calling them stupid or idiots, but notice that he also says, you don't seem to understand what is obvious here. Jesus has got to die. We've got to kill this guy in order to save the nation. The high priest was using patriotic rhetoric to mask his own selfish ambitions and to protect his position of influence and control that he and the rest of the council held in Israel and with Rome. It's not at all hard to look at that kind of a political personality and see it today in our own politicians, is it? Brazen impudence rancorous jealousy, insane ambition, national leaders that look out for their own positions and interests at the cost of the nation, but yet they use rhetoric that makes them look very patriotic and nationalistic. But what Caiaphas and the rest of the council were ignorant of was the sovereign purposes of God that were at work and to be accomplished even through the words of this high priest. 
In verses 52 to verse 53, John exposes what they could not see, what they could not discern because of their own godless self-interest. This is John's commentary for us. Verse 51. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Here John is showing that while this council had evil intentions toward the Son of God that were hidden behind their own pseudo-patriotic words, behind all of that, God was determined to execute his own plan of saving Israel and the world. Caiaphas hated Jesus, and he was driven by bitter jealousy and saying Jesus has got to die to save Israel from Roman destruction. And in truth, he didn't care about Israel as much as his own place of importance. And his words would set in motion a collaborative effort that John exposes in verse 53. So from that day forward, they planned to kill him. And where does that lead us to? Calvary. Without even realizing it, Caiaphas, in the wickedness of his heart, was prophesying the fulfillment of God's intention to save Israel. Caiaphas had one meaning. God had another meaning. We tend to think of a prophet as a man that is devoted to the purposes of God, committed to preach the message of God. But God is not only sovereign over his own spirit-filled preachers, he is sovereign over all. And we read in the Old Testament of examples like the evil King Saul who prophesied or Balaam who prophesied. Well, here was a prophet that was wicked and evil and intended to murder the Son of God. And yet behind his words, behind Caiaphas's words, God has his own purposes and intentions. What a comfort this is to us in a day when politicians and rulers are skilled to dress up their words so as to appear to care for a nation. Yet their self-interest, their deception beneath the surface. And I say a comfort to us because God overrules men, doesn't he? He overrules the purposes of men with his own purposes. And while men will be held to account for their wicked and their selfish actions as Caiaphas would, God will have his way and he will accomplish his purposes. And this is wonderfully portrayed by John in this gospel by showing the evil intentions of men that were overruled by God to bring about his plan of salvation. And in this case, men out of jealousy and hatred conspired to kill God's son with the false justification of saving a nation, saving Israel. But God determined to eternally save his people through that hateful decision, the decision of these men to kill his son. And this brings us back to our text in verse 54 through the end of the chapter as we look at the community's response. And I've identified that as a curiosity, but I want you to know this is an evil and wicked curiosity. 
Our final view of John 11 finds Jesus in a community that is quite intrigued by Jesus, but who were also quite content to watch the hostile drama unfold that was now announced by the Sanhedrin. They had come to their verdict. So from that day on, verse 53, they planned to kill him. And then you look farther on down, and you see at the end of the chapter, the chief priests, Pharisees, given orders. If anybody sees Jesus, you let us know. Why? Because we intend to do away with this man. So here's the community. They're intrigued by Christ. They've seen his miracles, many miracles. More recently, the miracle to raise the dead. And it's now their response to the Sanhedrin. Well, let's see how this plays out. Is Jesus going to come back for this or not? It's almost like these people are watching a sporting event. And they're watching about the hostility of the drama. How is this going to play back? Would Jesus actually come back for the Passover? Everybody comes for the Passover. Jesus has come for the past two Passovers. Will he come to this one? This is a wicked curiosity. And we know something more about this community because as John brings us to the close of his gospel, we see this community celebrating Jesus' triumphant ride into Jerusalem in just a few weeks. And then a couple days later, what are they calling out for? Crucify him. Crucify him. This is the community of Jerusalem. This is the crowd that is now asking the question, what do you think? Will Jesus come to the feast at all? You can almost see him pulling out their wallets and purses to put money down on. Let's gamble this out. It's a sporting event. Yet our knowledge of Passion Week reveals this was a very fickle crowd who at first celebrate Christ. They're intrigued by him. And then they crucify him. We've already been told in verse 45 that many in Jerusalem and the surrounding area believed in Jesus as a result of his miracle power. But as Jesus said in Luke 16, faith is not the result of seeing a miracle take place. And therefore, if this is a true faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, a true faith in him as the Son of God, we know that it was a faith that was worked in the heart of God's elect by the Holy Spirit that they would even recognize and believe the divine nature of Jesus by his signs and miracles. In other words, those who believed in verse 45, that was the result of the intrusion of God himself who opened their eyes to allow them to see that this truly is the Son of God. He is the resurrection and the life. It's not the miracle that won him over. It's the miracle that God used to open their eyes. And it required God active and present to cause them to believe in Christ, his son. But those in verse 56, they're not of that believing sort. What we do see from this crowd is a loyalty with their leaders, their religious leaders. We don't see a sense of outrage at the decision of the Sanhedrin such that they're going to see Jesus as holy and his divine credentials are obvious. 
Why is the Sanhedrin then, then rendering this verdict? There's no indignation in their question. There's no reverence. There's no worship, no devotion to this man who's brought healing and compassion into their city. There's no protest to the mistreatment of a man who may possibly be the Messiah of God. But rather, theirs was a morbid curiosity to see if Jesus would accept the challenge of the Sanhedrin. And would the Jewish rulers hold fast to their murderous threats? We're going to just sit back and watch as a spectator and see what unfolds. What this passage teaches us is that Jesus gave overwhelming proof that he was the God of creation and the giver of life. But sinful man also gave overwhelming proof to the prophetic words of Jesus that if men would refuse to listen to God speaking his word through the Old Testament prophets, they're not going to believe even if they see somebody rise from the dead. The scene that John describes following the resurrection of Lazarus gives clear evidence that man lives in bondage to his own sinful sinful depravity. If any are to be set free, So as to believe in the Savior, it has got to come by the intervening work of God. It is only by his grace and his power that any would believe on his son and be saved. And as we bring this study to a close, I want to bring yet another quote up, this time from J.C. Ryle, who is dealing with this subject of unbelief. He writes, let us beware of supposing that miracles alone have any power to convert men's souls and to make them Christians. The idea is a complete delusion. To fancy, as some do, that if they saw something wonderful done before their eyes in confirmation of the gospel, they would at once cast off all the indecision and serve Christ. It's a mere idle dream. It is the grace of the Spirit in our hearts, and not miracles that our souls require. The Jews of our Lord's day are standing proof to mankind that men may see signs and wonders and yet remain hard as stone. Friends, this reminds us yet again, does it not, that if any of us are going to come to believe, God himself must intrude by his grace and by his power and grant to us the gift of faith. How odd that men began to gather early for the Passover. It says here at the end of the chapter. Why? To purify themselves. They came to purify themselves outwardly to celebrate the Passover. And yet they were indifferent to the one man who proved he had the power and the mercy to purify their hearts before God. And in the end, the curiosity of Jerusalem was aroused by Jesus, but not their faith. Curiosity was aroused, but not faith. Now, I'd like to close our time with some theological conclusions for us to consider. Coming to a biblical understanding of God and his ways, coming to understand the treachery of sin in humanity, and taking the time to know what Jesus Christ came to do and why he did it, These are necessary for us to affirm our confidence in the gospel. And very often we come to this part of the sermon and we're going to make some practical applications that we apply to our conduct and our walk of faith. But application should also be for the heart, for the inner man. 
And theology should stir that within us. Theology should stir the heart of the believer to praise, to worship, to gratitude, adoration, peace within. It should stir us to trust. It should stir us to be satisfied in God's dealings with our lives. It should stir our hearts to admire him. It should stir us to confidence and assurance. This is practical application as well. Application to the heart. So I want to give you some three or some theological things to consider as we close. Number one, God's providence. God's providence is not limited by man's wickedness. God's providence is not limited by man's sin. The passage we studied this morning has demonstrated that what evil men intended to do, God worked for his good purposes. Caiaphas and the council determined to take the life of Jesus Christ under the false justification of patriotism and devotion to the Jewish religion. Their wicked hearts were not hidden from God. Rather, God used the prophetic declaration of Caiaphas and fixed his own purposes upon it. And I think if we could discern the providence of God in this, imagine how we might trust his sovereignty in the affairs of the world today. How we might trust his providence in dealing with our personal lives. The fact that God works even through the evils of men does not make their evil any less evil. And the word of God teaches us that God will hold all men to account for their evil. But the fact that God works through that evil teaches us that his power, his purposes cannot be thwarted by man's sinful activity. No greater evidence do we find for this than the cross itself. Never before was there a more innocent and more holy man executed. And yet look at what God did. He saved a nation of his own. He saved a people of his own. And you and I as believers this morning are the recipients of God's purposes overruling the evil intentions of man. Does this change how we see God work today in the corrupt affairs of the world or in the corruption of our own nation? Does it affect our heart with trust and confidence in God? Does it cause us to be at peace in our hearts with how God deals with the chaos in our world today? Another theological consideration the redemptive purposes of God overrules nations and cathedrals. The redemptive purposes of God overrules nations and cathedrals. And by cathedrals, I mean man's religion. If the men in the council chambers of our text were to deliberate before us, we might think of them as very patriotic individuals, very religious individuals. They're just looking out for the people. They're looking out for the nation. They're protecting our religious interests. Our text does expose the disingenuous nature of their so-called loyalties, but nonetheless, we don't want to miss the fact that God took those patriotic utterings of these self-centered high priests and fixed his own greater purpose on it. And despite the claimed intention of this council, God fulfilled his redemptive purposes and you will note that some 40 years later, 
Israel and Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. So the Jews didn't accomplish what they thought, what they hoped, or what they claimed. Israel did end up losing both their place and their nation, but God triumphed to accomplish his plan of redemption. It can be difficult for us to watch the erosion of a nation that we feel stands for the good of the world. And if we truly trust in the sovereign goodness of God to accomplish his purposes, then we can be more confident when our own nation or our own world seems to be eroding away. I think as as citizens of this nation, we ought to be active. We ought to vote. We ought to speak up and let our voice be heard. We ought to be proactive. But we also recognize we're not going to win every battle. And this nation may not survive. But our God always will. He's still on the throne. He is the king. He's sovereign. And whatever he does with us as a nation, whatever he does with this world, whatever he does with our community, God will triumph. And we belong to him. Are we then more concerned with patriotism and our position and privileges in the world than we are for the eternal purposes of Christ? Are we confident in God's rule, satisfied with his determinations? A third theological consideration this morning. Christ died for the flock that he came to save. He died for the flock that he came to save. And here I am making a case for particular redemption of God's people. Or we can say this passage declared the efficacy of the cross itself. Jesus did not merely die to make salvation possible. He died to save his people. In reading verse 51 to 52, John is telling us his commentary on what God purposed to do through the murder of Jesus, the Son of God. Caiaphas and the council determined one thing. God was preaching his purpose. I will save my nation and those who are scattered abroad. If we take that passage, verse 51 and 52, and lay it right over John chapter 11, we're going to see a perfect parallel. Because Jesus Christ said, I came to call my flock out of the flock of Israel. I call my sheep and they know my voice and I know them by name. He knew exactly those who would believe in Israel. And he said, I came to lay down my life for them, my flock. And he said further, there is another flock, referring to the Gentile community in John chapter 10, when he said, there are others, verse 16, other sheep which are not of this fold, not of Israel in other words. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Now we go back to the false prophecy of Caiaphas and John telling us this is what God determined to do. Caiaphas did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. John is not saying all of Israel is going to be saved. What he's saying is, I will die for those in my nation that I intend to save. And for the, not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together in one the children of God who are scattered. There's the Gentile community. That he will bring to himself 
and Christ would die for those. He would die for his people. This is the prophecy that Caiaphas did not understand. He was speaking with his evil, wicked words. Jesus came to die for his people, those chosen out of the nation of Israel and for those scattered abroad from the nation. Does the word of God support what John seems to be saying? James Montgomery Boyce again quotes from a passage from Arthur Pink in his commentary, pointing out these passages for your consideration. Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 8, for the transgressions of my people, my people was he stricken. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. Not all, but many. John 10, verse 11 and 15, the good shepherd lays down his life for who? The sheep, his flock, his people. Ephesians 5, verse 25, Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Friends, if you're a believer, does that not give you confidence? Jesus Christ did not just come to make salvation possible. He actually came to save us. And he accomplished that when he bore my sin on the cross and your sin if you're one of his today. He actually made salvation effective. Are you confident in his atonement for you? If you're a believer, you should be. You should be. You should have that confidence. And if you don't have that confidence this morning, we invite you, come look at the Savior. Put your faith in him because he's the only one that can give us that assurance. Praise be to our redemptive God. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son. We thank you that he was willing to be murdered and mistreated and nailed to a cross. He was willing to become defiled with our vile sins so that we might be saved and rescued. This is a testament to your redemptive love for sinners. It is a testament to your son's holiness and his willingness to be our savior, our redeemer. It is a testament to your spirit who is willing to intrude into our depravity and our stubbornness, and our sinfulness, and open our hearts and minds to see Jesus for who he really is, and to grant us the gift to believe. Father, our hearts are given to worship, and to praise you, and to adore you this morning. In Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.